Serverless computing abstracts away the idea of a server node. Serverless lets programmers treat compute resources as high-level, reliable APIs, rather than unreliable, low-level compute nodes that might fail at any time. Serverless dramatically improves the efficiency of programmers. Instead of thinking of a database as a set of servers that needs to be sharded and replicated, the programmer can think of a database as a place to read and write data. Instead of modeling an application as a large monolith running on an application server in a container or a VM, the programmer can think of their application as a decoupled set of functions. Serverless computing is a natural evolution of software engineering in a world with cloud providers. The first version of serverless functions as a service came out of Amazon Web Services with their Lambda service, which allows users to run functions in the cloud. These functions are scheduled onto a physical server somewhere in an Amazon data center. They're executed, and then they return the result. With AWS Lambda, programmers got a new abstraction to model their applications with, but it requires the use of a closed-source API. Lambda is not open-source, and this makes some developers reluctant to integrate with it too tightly. Fission is an open-source framework for serverless functions built on Kubernetes. Fission allows developers to deploy functions as a service without being locked into any specific cloud provider. Soam Vasani is the creator of Fission and an engineer at Platform 9. In a previous episode, Soam talked about the architecture for Fission and the design choices for solving the cold start and scheduling problems. Soam joins the show today to discuss how serverless applications have evolved since we last spoke more than a year ago. Soam also talks about how Fission itself has evolved and the features that an open source serverless platform like Fission needs to have in order to compete with a fully developed cloud provider. Full disclosure, Platform 9, where Soam works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. For all of the advances in data science and machine learning over the last few years, most teams are still stuck trying to deploy their machine learning models manually. That is tedious, it's resource intensive, and it often ends in various forms of failure. The Algorithmia AI layer deploys your models automatically in minutes, empowering data scientists and machine learning engineers to productionize their work with ease. Algorithmia's AI tooling optimizes hardware usage and GPU acceleration and works with all popular languages and frameworks. Deploy ML models the smart way and head to Algorithmia.com to get started and upload your pre-trained models. If you use the code SWEDAILY, they will give you 50,000 credits free, which is pretty sweet. That's code SWE daily. The expert engineers at Algorithmia are always available to help your team successfully deploy your models to production with the AI layer tooling. And you can also listen to a couple episodes I've done with the CEO of Algorithmia if you want to hear more about their pretty sweet set of software platforms. Go to algorithmia.com and use the code SWE daily to try it out. Or, of course, listen to those episodes. (music) 
So I'm Vasani. You are a software engineer at Platform9, and you work on Fission, which is a serverless framework on top of Kubernetes. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Indeed. So last time you were on the show, we talked about Fission. We talked about the architecture of a serverless framework built on top of Kubernetes. So I want to review some of the stuff that we talked about last time, but for the most part, we'll talk about newer things. Just to catch some people up, what's your current definition of that word serverless? <laughs> I see we're going straight to the hard questions. You know, to be honest, I think just like the term cloud, it has started losing meaning. But th- that said, it is both, it's a bit of an aspirational term. It's the idea that you can deal with applications without dealing with servers, right? That's the most basic idea. And AWS incarnation of this is is obviously Lambda, but you know they then expanded it to be more to be other services. And I think like there's been this sort of what is FAS and what is serverless functions as a service versus serverless. And I think if you look at the history of application development platforms, a lot of the current definitions of serverless can be applied to platforms that existed a while ago. But this is sort of a newer take on, for example, PaaS or Google App Engine. A lot of these things are, by in many ways, serverless. I remember reading a tweet from someone which was half-jokingly saying that uh, serverless means somebody else's Kubernetes cluster. And the idea is if somebody else... It's actually a pretty good definition. Yeah, exactly. If somebody else is managing hardware and servers for you and giving you any kind of API to deploy and manage services on it, that is in some sense serverless. Sorry, and there's one more little point there, which is that another thing that's become tied to serverless but isn't really in the term is the idea of paying for what you use. And conversely, and in the private cloud space, being uh, having resource utilization that's very closely proportional to your actual usage. Right. That resource utilization thing, I think that's going to be important in, in, in this conversation because the conversations I usually have around serverless also tie in with conversations around containers, container orchestration, the deployment of containers. So when I'm talking to cloud providers, for example, about containers, I had a show recently about the container offerings on AWS, and they have this range of things. They have, you know, you can obviously deploy on Kubernetes, you can deploy on their ECS, which is sort of like deploying on their managed Kubernetes. Uh, They have standalone container instances. They have this Amazon Fargate thing where you can just deploy a a long-lived container without having to manage a Kubernetes cluster. And then they also have the AWS Lambda offering, which is, quote, serverless, but it's basically I deploy a function, and when that function is going to execute, it spins up a container and then it executes that function on the container, and then the container spins down. And I don't have to really care about any of this. It just gets executed for me. So we have a a wide variety of ways that we could deploy a function, that we could deploy a service against this infrastructure. And it it varies. You know, we're going to get the same, pretty much the same thing out of it. We're going to get an execution of that function, whether it's deployed on a Kubernetes cluster or it's deployed on a serverless function. So what's the difference? What are we looking at here? Why does it why does it matter if I have this workload deployed to a Kubernetes instance or a, a container instance or a serverless function? Why does this even matter? I see this as a question about when to use what. I think they are 
different abstraction layers, right? And to complete that picture, you could even add to that plain old EC2. You know, as they reduce the granularity of like payments there, you could provision a VM, run a workload and destroy it if you don't care about how long your workload takes to run. And there's an abstraction level difference, how much you have to do other than your just your application. Do I need to... And it's a bit of a spectrum. Like even with... Uh, at one end is stuff like EC2, and you could be even more extreme and say there's things like buying your own servers. But And at the other extreme is, you know, a fully managed uh, sort of uh, functions as a service uh, uh, API like Lambda. And But even there, for example, you have to manage your dependencies. Uh, you depend on a certain version of a library. You have to deal with packaging. And you can see the sort of proliferation of frameworks that even just work with uh, AWS Lambda. So there's a little bit of that incidental complexity. And then there's more and more as you look at uh, services that, ha- that have a different level of abstraction. But then you gain something from being at a lower level of abstraction, and that's generality, right? You can deploy a service that is long-lived, has in-memory state, but you can't do it to, uh, on Lambda. You would need something else to do that. And so then the question is, okay, I can always stand up a Kubernetes cluster and various clouds now have managed Kubernetes clusters. So kind of the installation problem and upgrades and all that is taken care of. So it's not like as bad as having to stand up something from a bare OS. But then your question is, if your workloads, some of them fit into this short-lived stateless model, which is perfect for functions, and some of them fit into long-lived, having in-memory state, or having legacy software that you don't want to repackage into smaller pieces that, that fit into functions. A typical non-trivial application will have like components that fit different models. And so, and you know, I'm going out a bit, this is not without controversy, this statement, but I think Kubernetes is the right place for things to come together. I think that placing certain workloads on Kubernetes makes sense, but then if you have some other half of your workloads on Lambda, you're now wondering about how to coordinate these with each other. And there aren't any particularly good ways of doing that. Various monitoring frameworks that exist are kind of specialized either for Kubernetes or for Lambda, but not one or the other. And in general, the containers and serverless split isn't really good for for users. A much more continuous kind of uh, choice is, I think, much more optimal for, for both dev and ops teams. So you can run, which is why I'm a proponent of running functions on Kubernetes. So all the work you do for, for having a Kubernetes cluster, monitoring this and that, applies equally well to functions. So at that point, you're using, you are using functions and you are using other long-lived services, but you still get some benefit from whatever is common between them. It feels like we're in a place right now where there is more manual decision-making for workload scheduling than there should be. It seems like if I want to deploy a workload, maybe it's machine learning training, maybe it's a microservice, maybe it's something like image resizing that's just a you know a quick ad hoc operation. It seems like I should be able to just say, okay, deploy this so that it runs in a responsive way. It has low enough latency that it works well for me and I want to minimize cost. And the, the dream is that this would just be all taken care of for me by this infrastructure management layer. And then under the hood, 
Maybe it's being deployed to a Kubernetes container that's that's long-lived. Maybe it's being opportunistically scheduled onto random infrastructure that, again, is being managed by Kubernetes. Maybe it's being deployed ad hoc to a functions-as-a-service platform like Fission that's sitting on top of Kubernetes. But today, we still have to manually tell whatever infrastructure provider or self-managed Kubernetes stack how this thing should be deployed. Yeah, we're still very much in a state of rapid evolution so that if someone were to create such an abstraction that kind of makes good choices for you, that those choices may not be the right choices six months from now. That said, I think there is some room for for leveling up the, the kinds of abstractions that uh, people talk about with their workloads and then having frameworks that automatically decide where to schedule those. So like, for example, it's kind of interesting that people do a lot of sort of slightly hacky things with uh, stuff, even with uh, serverless, even with Lambda, where they're like, oh, we need low latency response times uh, from this function. So we write this little thing on the side that pings our function continuously to keep it warm, right? And like frameworks are popping up to do this. But really what you want is to be able to say, I want my 99 percentile latency to be so-and-so. I don't care how you do it. Tell me how much it'll cost. Here's a ceiling on how much I'm willing to pay for it and go make it happen. And if you have to maintain a container continuously to do that, okay, charge me for it. And you know, if it fits my bill, I'll, I'll pay for it. Otherwise, I'll change my requirements, right? Like being able to talk about your workloads at that level is somewhere where we aren't quite yet, but we'd like to be. Well, I remember having a show with Netflix a couple of years ago where we talked about Netflix's container scheduling system. Actually, at this point, I think it was, I don't know if it was container scheduling, but they they were using Mesos. They might have been scheduling this stuff on onto VMs, but I imagine that Netflix had containers at for, for on some level at this point. But the way that that you know people scheduled jobs at Netflix onto this resource scheduler was they would describe it, I believe, in terms of priority and in terms of how much resources were needed, and then. You know, Netflix is such a, a savvy consumer of resources. They just, you know, they have this this giant pool of EC2 instances that you know maybe have just gotten decommissioned for something else at Netflix, and then you know that they're already warm, and they can just you know grab those VMs and do something with them. But really, just the idea of the user just saying this is the priority and this is the amount of resources that it needs, and then that's enough information for Netflix to be smart about how it allocates workloads. That's that seemed like that's maybe something that's more aspirational for what the general consumer would be able to do on Kubernetes today, on the all, on the all-purpose Kubernetes workload system that we're kind of envisioning here. But even then, that's like that seems like too much to have to specify. It still it seems like the system should almost be able to infer how much resources you're going to consume and and when this thing is going to be scheduled. Yeah, you bring up good points there because most people don't really know how much resources their their software needs until they actually measure it. And even measuring it is pretty tricky because it depends on whether your measurement environment is the same as, as the one in production. And then you don't really know your actual workload. Like you may get 10 times as many users as you thought, or you may get half as many. So yeah, specifying resources is, is a little tricky, but... Being able to infer them automatically is uh, 
I'm kind of... That's uh, pretty hard. Yeah, <laughs> they like, were far from that. I'm trying to imagine what so much of our stack, the way like we allocate memory in our programming languages is kind of, you just keep asking for memory until like most uh, software don't really handle the failure to acquire more memory except by just, you know, exiting. So like writing software that, that reacts correctly to, to limited resources is, is actually something today we deal with by simply restarting stuff. And this is kind of where this 12-factor uh, apps and, and things like that come into the picture where we say it's better to have the complex stuff be stateless so that we can restart it, scale it up, scale it down, change the resource allocation, things like that. But to your point, I, I think some a certain amount of knowledge has to come from the user to the infrastructure. And kind of the challenge is figuring out what those what those parameters are that that the user can express correctly and effectively. So like we cannot guess what is the optimal median latency for a workload just from infrastructure, right? Because maybe the clients of your API aren't human and don't really care if it's slow. But maybe your API is part of an interactive API and it's one of a hundred things called and you have two milliseconds to respond, right? It really could be in any direction. So some of those requirements really have to come from, from the user. Well, we can stop talking about the bright future of being able to magically schedule our workloads and have our our underlying infrastructure system be able to infer how much resource and latency and, and so on and the parameters. Let's talk about today, the reality. So you work on Fission. Fission is a serverless on Kubernetes framework. Why would they want to operate their own serverless system on top of a Kubernetes instance? Yeah, good question. Exactly. So this comes a bit to the question you asked in the beginning, which is, with all these choices, how do you decide? So first of all, I think that application frameworks should be open source. And the more proprietary stuff your application depends on, the worse off you are. Not just from a point of view of switching away from that proprietary thing, but just your general flexibility, your level of control over your over how your application runs. Say you want to test it a different way, you want to see how much uh, a certain different architecture would cost, that kind of thing is... I'm speaking a, li- a little bit vaguely, but you know, I, I think these are there are strong reasons for preferring open source stuff in your app and deployment stack. Okay, so given that, I think that any non-trivial application is going to have multiple different kinds of compute architectures. Despite working on a serverless system, I don't really buy the idea that every single application in the future is going to be written as a bunch of functions. So certain applications fit extremely well into long-lived stateful services. Classic classic examples are Memcached, Memcached, Redis, things like that, that are basically designed to be APIs in front of a bunch of memory. Databases are better off long-lived because they have a lot of caching. So the point is you are always going to consume compute resources in some way that isn't functions. And you want some layer that's more general than functions. And Kubernetes really presented that Perfectly, it you know there are competing cluster orchestrators, but you know this one's kind of Kubernetes is kind of uh, unequivocally winning that that uh, fight. So I think it forms a perfect space to bring your workloads together, and there your workloads that can be fit into functions. Fission forms 
a good FAS system to, to work with. And you can use the same tools that you use with Kubernetes with Fission. So you can use the Kubernetes CLI, you can use the Kubernetes, any Kubernetes log aggregation or monitoring thing you have. Let's say if you're on Google and they have the Stackdriver thing, you can, uh, you know, Stackdriver does um, log and metrics and tracing aggregation for your workloads. And it has nice little integrations with uh, with their managed Kubernetes. And then that integration works just fine with Fission and, you know, similar for the other clouds. So you get a lot of benefit from running your functions in the same place as your other workloads. Right. The things that I hear from the AWS Lambda people, for example, so the the functions as a service on Amazon, the the use cases that I hear are you get quick scalability or well not maybe not quick because you still have this cold start problem where you know when you call that function it it has to be spun up on a container and that takes some time before the function can actually be called but you have essentially unlimited cloud resources so if you have bursty workloads you can call these things on a bursty workload basis. Other features of, of Lambda is, you know, people use it for a lot of glue code. So like gluing together, you upload something to S3, then maybe you have a quick Lambda function that just triggers and then notifies your Amazon image recognition system to look at that image that just got uploaded to S3. So you have glue code that sits between these thick Amazon proprietary managed services. So these are like, these are almost like cloud provider specific use cases. Uh, I mean, obviously you want quick auto scaling for any company. It wants to be able to quickly auto scale bursty workloads, but a lot of the stuff around the glue code, that's more of a cloud provider specific use case. So if we're talking about being able to have a function as a service platform on top of a Kubernetes cluster that we're managing ourselves, are the use cases the same as the ones that people are using on a cloud provider like AWS? Great question. And I, I think they they aren't quite the same. The optimal set of workloads are, are, are I think, slightly different. So to remind a bit about something you said at the beginning of the question, the cost profile of your application depends on how exactly your your workload uh, your workload demand rises and falls in other words how elastic your demands are but interestingly on amazon you have to make a choice based on some studying of your workload itself so just to make this concrete very interactive workloads with very bursty utilization fit well into this all-inclusive AWS Lambda kind of service, but something like a batch workload, which will run, let's say, for several days and do a bunch of analysis on a bunch of data, that kind of thing is not a good fit for Lambda at all because you are actually paying a premium for elasticity with Lambda. So if you just do a sort of thought experiment and say, suppose my workload is going to run for 24 hours, what's the best kind of compute I can buy for, for from Amazon? And it's probably EC2 in terms of cost. And then if you find the equivalent cost for running a Lambda for continuously for 24 hours, I think the last time I did the math, it was two to five times that of EC2. This makes sense because essentially you, you are paying a premium for that elasticity. So if I want to run a big MapReduce job on EC2 machines, that's going to cost me one half to one fifth of the cost if I wanted to run that MapReduce on a magically auto-scaling AWS Lambda process? I think so, yes. I did this math almost a year ago, so things may have changed a little bit. But I believe that's true, you know, discounting the free tier and things like that. 
But assuming you've you're, you've saturated your free stuff already, and and, yeah, and you're actually paying for yeah exactly. And the funny thing is that FAS is not just about paying for what you use; it's also about the development benefits of of not having to deal with servers. And now you have to look at your workload and say, hmm, my workload actually does not fit that payment model very well. So I also lose the development benefits. And so I think such workloads fit very well into FAS on Kubernetes. So you you can still design your workload as a bunch of functions. If you're going to run it for a long time, you simply use instances uh, on Kubernetes that, uh, that are the cheapest. Uh, if you can, you know, if your plans fit this, you can buy reserved instances. And in fact, you can also buy spot instances if your workload can be divided into, into short-lived tasks. Right. And spot instances are a really interesting thing for FAS on Kubernetes. So just as a reminder for anyone who, who might not know it, spot instances are where you you bid for essentially a VM. And if your bid is high enough, you you get that VM, otherwise you don't. If the cost if the cost changes in real time and if it goes above your bid, your your instance is terminated. So these instances are typically much cheaper, the EC2 VMs that you can reliably buy and, and keep running. But they're a great fit for functions because your functions are already designed to be stateless and short-lived. So so killing them, killing an instance of a function is, is not a bad thing at all. And if you can fit a batch workload onto FAS on spot instances, that is way cheaper than running Lambda. And I don't want to present this as some kind of silver bullet. You know, you do have to deal with uh, Kubernetes. There's a certain amount of uh, learning curve. We do try to abstract away a lot of Kubernetes things in Fission. But yes, the the trade-off is that uh, this can be much cheaper. OpenShift is a Kubernetes platform from Red Hat. OpenShift takes the Kubernetes container orchestration system and adds features that let you build software more quickly. OpenShift includes service discovery, CI/CD, built-in monitoring and health management, and scalability. With OpenShift, you can avoid being locked into any of the particular large cloud providers. You can move your workloads easily between public and private cloud infrastructure as well as your own on-prem hardware. OpenShift from Red Hat gives you Kubernetes without the complication. Security, log management, container networking, configuration management. You can focus on your application instead of complex Kubernetes issues. OpenShift is open source technology built to enable everyone to launch their big ideas. Whether you're an engineer in a large enterprise or a developer getting your startup off the ground, you can check out OpenShift from Red Hat by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash redhat. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash redhat. I remember the earliest shows I did about Kubernetes and trying to understand its potential and what it was for, and I remember people saying that this is a platform for building platforms so it's kubernetes is was not meant to be used from raw kubernetes to have a platform as a service it was meant as a lower level infrastructure piece to build platforms as a service on top of which is why openshift came into manifestation so you can check it out by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash redhat and find out about openshift 
There are so many different ways that people deploy Kubernetes. The cloud provider way is often through a managed service like Amazon has EKS. That's their elastic Kubernetes service. Google has a similar thing. GKE, Azure has a similar thing. But then you could also just spin up EC2 instances you could run Kubernetes across EC2 instances. You could use like normal Kubernetes, vanilla Kubernetes that is not at all tied into Amazon EKS, and you could run Kubernetes however you wanted to on top of those EC2 instances. You could also run Kubernetes on your your on-prem servers. If you've got an on-prem installation or if you if you're set up in a way that you can't be entirely on the cloud, then you know maybe you're you're running Kubernetes on your own machines. In addition to that, there are these layers on top of Kubernetes. There are these management layers like Platform 9 where you work. That's a management layer that you can operate your infrastructure more easily that sits on top of Kubernetes. So maybe you're using Kubernetes, maybe you're using Kubernetes with a management layer like Platform 9, maybe you're using Kubernetes in the cloud. Among all these different use cases, who are the kinds of people and who are the kinds of users, the types of customers, the types of enterprises that would want to deploy a serverless on Kubernetes framework like Fission? So we definitely see a lot of on-prem use to start with. And this is part, partly because, you know, we at Platform 9, since we have a management layer for Kubernetes, for on-prem users, this is like oh, way better than managing it yourself. So it gives you all the benefits of GKE or, or EKS uh, with your physical servers. So these folks are looking, for example, at their infrastructure investments and saying, how do I use modern ways of application development on this stuff that I've already bought? And they may be tied to their infrastructure, not just because of investment, but because of storage, for example, and they want to be able to run functions on them. So we definitely see on-prem users going for fission on their Kubernetes clusters. And the other class of users I see, and these are almost a disjoint set, are folks for whom the various public cloud serverless offerings are too limited in some way or another. So this can be either the total runtime. You spoke a bit about infinite cloud capacity, right, in the beginning, but a lot of people don't reach the limit and so can feel that it's infinite. But you, once your workload gets big enough, you start hitting rate limits which are different for various clouds. Uh, there's a really nice academic study on, on cold starts and performance of the big three public cloud serverless systems as your, as your de- workload demand goes up. And they all function very differently as your workloads go up. And so as you start pushing against those limits, so there's the runtime, there's the rate limiting, there is, there's simply the idea that you may want to package uh, your own your own dependencies that uh, may reach you know, size limits of Lambda and so on. But various uh, limits people reach, and they kind of go to go to fission on Kubernetes. And uh, we see this with uh, one of our uh, customers running, one of our users running uh, fission on Google Cloud on Kubernetes because they are doing certain machine learning workloads that take uh, much longer than uh, Google Cloud functions can run. They also want stronger control over the runtime. They want to carefully control the cold starts. So Fission has more tunable parameters, as you might imagine, than than serverless uh, public cloud offerings. So you can simply choose to keep a function warm all the time, or even a certain number of instances warm all the time. So you're prepared for uh, a big burst of requests. 
I think this is something we spent a lot of time on the on the last show. The idea that cold starts are a spectrum of trade offs. The idea you can't just quote solve the cold start problem. Explain what the cold start problem is and and some of the different parameters by which people would like to tune the cold start problem and and how they can do that with fission. I love talking about this stuff. The cold start problem is basically there are two problems. There are two things we need and they oppose each other. We want to only pay for what we use, right? If 100 requests are coming in, we want to use just enough resources to make those 100 requests work. And then we want to immediately stop using those resources so that we only pay for what our customers were paying us for, right? And the other requirement is that when demand comes in to our application, we want to quickly satisfy that demand. So those 100 users who came in with their requests, they shouldn't be kept waiting. And these two goals are in opposition. The way you achieve low latency is by pre-allocating stuff. So you keep your uh, services running, you keep them, you know, you keep their memory allocated, you reserve spots on the, the CPU for them, you reserve, uh, reserve some networking uh, IP address resources, all that stuff is like pre-allocated for those functions. But then now you're paying for that. So if you've kept them in memory, you're, you're not running something else, which means you are uh, consuming resources for that function. And so this, you know, threading this trade-off is the cold start problem. It's the idea that how much time does it take to run a function after it's been idle for a while? And that that time is the cold start overhead of the function. And you especially see this on public clouds because you pay for what you use, right? Uh, it's uh, very directly measured in dollars. So they have to stop your function when when you aren't paying for it. Otherwise, they are losing money. And so, and different clouds do this differently. In fact, we can never really know what they are doing without, we can, we can do a lot of like studying and uh, experimenting and poking at their implementations, but you don't really know what they're doing in terms of cold start, except when you see a, a certain latency. So we know, for example, that AWS never lets your function run more than four hours. So you see a cold start every four hours. It's kind of strange, but uh, this is some sort of internal scheduling decision that they seem to have made. And you don't have a whole lot of control over that in the public cloud. I, I mentioned that people write these external things that ping their function every now and then. This is actually, A, it's, it's a little bit hacky and you are, you're paying for those pings, but B, it doesn't actually scale because you know, you're, you're sending a very small amount of requests to your function and it may be kept warm, but only one instance would be kept warm. And when you get hundreds of requests, you need more than one instance of that function. So what you're saying here is the cold start problem can be due to any number of things. So the process of executing a function as a service You've got to spin up a container or take a container that's already spun up and provision it to run your function. You've got to install the packages. So if, you know, if you've got a function as a service that you want to run, if, you want to, if you've got a JavaScript function that you want to run, or you've got a Python, let's say you want you know, a Python function you want to run, and this container spins up, you've, maybe you've got to install some Python packages in order to actually execute the function. Installing the Python packages takes a little bit, and then you know, loading the container image on, or, or I guess uh, loading the container, the, the program, I don't exactly know the deployment model, but you, know, you have the program load onto it, and then you have to actually execute it. And then there's latency all along the way. With Lambda, 
you don't really know what's going on. So you don't know they've got some pool of containers that are already spun up and maybe you know some of those are already provisioned to run Python functions. Maybe some of them are only provisioned to run JavaScript functions. And so they have this scheduling process where you know, if you have a request for a JavaScript function, maybe you have to wait for one of these containers with JavaScript to become available, or maybe not. Maybe you get a fresh container and they load JavaScript onto it and, and then you can run it, or they no- load Node onto it, sorry, I should say. But it's opaque, is your point. You don't know what's going on. And, you know, you have some SLA, you have some, some guarantees around how long it's going to take, but the opacity, that bothers some people. So, with fission, you have more transparency around what is going on during the cold start problem. Yes. So with fission, we provide users an, an option to provide something we call an execution strategy for a function. And there you can choose, currently I kind of divided this into three buckets. You can choose the, and you know, the, you can choose the two extremes of cost performance and you can choose a middle. So the two extremes are very cheap and very slow. So there you choose that a function should, everything related to the function should spin up when it gets its first request. And this can be horribly slow. You may actually fetch the image. Uh, Even if you've already fetched it, it has to be started, allocated an IP address. This can take on the order of seconds on a typical Kubernetes cluster that, that has a certain amount of load running. Way on the other extreme is you can choose that a function continuously at all times has a certain minimum scale always running. And that that costs you certain resources. But anytime those, anytime a certain number of requests come in, you always have those many instances of the function running. So you're always equipped to handle a certain amount of traffic with close to zero overhead. And the third one is to use pooling, which is the approach you, you just described, where you have a pool of Node.js or Python containers, or in fact, you, you choose on Fission which pools you're going to have on your cluster. And uh, you can also choose the actual image that runs inside those, uh, in that pool. And that pool is kind of, people have described this as a kind of stem cell, like it can become any function, that container. So it's pre-warmed, it's running, it has a certain amount of memory already allocated to it. And when a function request comes in, it can load a function. And that's what efficient infrastructure does. It quickly, and by quickly, I mean on the order of, you know, it depends on the function size, language, all that, but something between 40 to several hundred milliseconds to load the function onto a container and proxy the request to it. So we allow users to choose on this spectrum. Somewhere where we, this is going back to the future stuff we talked about in the beginning, we'd really like to give users the ability to level this up to their application level abstractions. Like someday I want users to be able to say, this function should have so-and-so median latency, so-and-so 99 percentile latency, just do what you need to do. I don't know anything about instances. I don't know anything about whether you want to keep it always running figure it out, maybe do like machine learning on the on the actual workload demands, whatever it is, make those guarantees come true. Somewhere I, I'd like us to get there in the future, but, uh, but for now you specify slightly more low-level things. That makes sense to me. And also, by the way, I want to mention the whole vision of an open source serverless framework that sits on top of Kubernetes, that makes sense to me as well, because in my experience talking to people, just about software on this show. One thing I've learned is developers like alternatives and people will use alternatives. So I remember when I first started doing shows about 
the JavaScript frameworks. You know, uh, React was really popular, and then I did some shows about Vue.js, and the Vue.js shows were really popular. And I was wondering, why does anybody care about this? React is the new hotness. Who cares about Vue? It's this hipster version of whatever, you know, JavaScript, um, you know, you know front-end framework. But then, lo and behold, it becomes extremely popular. Vue is very, very popular, and and also it's just di- I think it's diverged from React in certain ways. It's cleaner in certain ways. As I don't I don't remember exactly how it works, but the way that you're negotiating resources, like some people prefer it. Maybe they prefer it just to be different. Maybe they like the open source community around it. Maybe they like the culture of the community around it. So divergences happen in software, and especially if we're talking about something like serverless, where the state of the art, what most people are doing, is they're running on a cloud provider. They're running these serverless functions on a cloud provider. And I think it's largely because serverless is very new. People don't really know what they're doing. They don't know. They're like they're kind of unclear. Like, what can I use a serverless function for? Why am I doing this? Like, I just learned about containers a couple weeks ago. Like, why am I doing this other thing? So it's it's very nascent still, and it's one of those things where you know sometimes the alternatives only start to really gain a whole lot of traction or a whole lot of community understanding after the mainstream solutions have become mainstream and after people have really started to understand what are the mainstream purposes for doing this, does it become clear that there are very good reasons for alternatives to emerge and to support alternatives? Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, I think we've motivated the purpose of Fission, the purpose of an open source Kubernetes-supported serverless framework. So let's talk a little bit about the architecture and and talk about the architecture a little bit like in, in terms of what has changed since you last came on the show. So if I'm running a Kubernetes cluster with Fission on top of it, a user can make a request to spin up a function and execute that function. That was the case last time. Today, I'm sure you know that has changed to, to some degree. What are the improvements? What are the changes that you've made to the core functionality, the core scheduling system of Fission? Yeah, the core scheduling system is where is uh, the the stuff we spoke about. So when we started, we had one opinionated way of executing functions, and that was pooling, and we didn't let you choose. In fact, I think we didn't even let you choose the CPU and memory that your function would get. So now that's much more flexible. This is you know, directly about scheduling. You can choose an execution strategy. There are different backends for different execution strategies. In fact, the Fission execution layer was, was called a pool manager because it, it only did pools, but now it's called the execution layer and to the pool manager is like one implementation of that. So that's the sort of the core execution model change. We've made several other changes and one thing that we've been very, we wanted to make sure we do not change that, those simple three or four commands that you can run to get started. That has remained the same. You can still do hello world with three commands, right? You write your hello world function, you do fission function create, fission route create to make that function accessible to the outside world, and then you invoke that function. That that has not changed. So that was kind of designed as a developer focused, like, Reduce the lead time for applications so you can use Kubernetes easily. Uh, that was the idea, empowering developers on Kubernetes. But then we realized that you don't just want to move fast, you want to move fast safely, right? 
So if this is going to be a real thing that gets used in production, then we are going to have to have stuff that an ops team cares about. How do I tell that your functions thing is working? How do I tell what, how it's performing, what latencies my users are seeing, things like that. And then there's the questions around how do I do deployments? How do I manage my functions? When we started, we, we were very focused on, on that developer experience. So there was this command line, easy command line way to, to get started. And then we realized people are scripting these command lines and they really are designed more as user interfaces and not really programming interfaces. So we created this declarative specifications and directory full of configuration. So now you can check it into your version control. You can sort of associate it with your deployment and then essentially you can do GitOps. So you can say, when I deploy this to my Git repository, then I'll deploy it to my cluster and to roll back, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll change, uh, roll back my commit or, or make a new commit and deploy that to the cluster. So you can sort of have a full specification of what is running as a set of configuration files. So infrastructure as code, essentially. And that having that specification lets you do nice things. So like I said, you can do GitOps, but you can also do live reloads. So a thing we added is now, by the way, because we optimize cold starts, that means we can execute new functions very quickly on the order of less than human perception, right? If you can do it within 100 milliseconds, people don't really perceive it as too much time having passed which means we can do this nice thing where we can watch the files on your file system as you're editing them. And when you save a file, the Fission CLI notices that file has changed. It can send it over to the cluster and it can drop it into another pre-running container and you can just run your tests and you instantly see whether your function that you just wrote a second ago, whether it succeeds or fails. So that's something that front-end folks have had for a while. Like you mentioned React and Vue and various other like development uh, frameworks for in the front-end world, uh, CSS and JavaScript, all those frameworks have had like live reload where, where you can quickly look at a browser and see how your changes affected it. But the back-end world has always been a little bit slow to, to have this kind of stuff. So with serverless uh, functions, it's a nice fit because you know functions are designed to, to be started uh, on demand. So we implemented that in Fission and it takes advantage of some of these scheduling optimization. It takes advantage of the cold start optimizations that you can do that quickly enough for, for the programmer to say, hey, that, that was fast. Azure Container Service simplifies the deployment, management, and operations of Kubernetes. Eliminate the complicated planning and deployment of fully orchestrated, containerized applications with Kubernetes. You can quickly provision clusters to be up and running in no time, while simplifying your monitoring and cluster management through auto-upgrades and a built-in operations console. Avoid being locked into any one vendor or resource. You can continue to work with the tools that you already know, such as Helm, and move applications to any Kubernetes deployment. Integrate with your choice of container registry, including Azure Container Registry. Also, quickly and efficiently scale to maximize your resource utilization without having to take your applications offline. Isolate your application from infrastructure failures and transparently scale the underlying infrastructure to meet growing demands, all while increasing the security, reliability, and availability of critical business workloads with Azure. 
To learn more about Azure Container Service and other Azure services, as well as receive a free ebook by Brendan Burns, go to aka.ms/sedaily. Brendan Burns is the creator of Kubernetes, and his ebook is about some of the distributed systems design lessons that he has learned building Kubernetes. That ebook is available at aka.ms/sedaily. So that hot code reload where if I'm working on a file that's a serverless function and I make a change to it and I save the file and then the CLI, the the Fission CLI is watching that file and it notices that I've just saved it, it can redeploy it or maybe, you know, it tries to compile it and if it can compile it, then it redeploys it. But then what does it do? Like, does it just execute or does it execute like with unit test data? Is it executing on a test? So the live reload portion, that particular feature only does goes as far as deploying it. And you can run your tests if they... You've probably already set up some tests to run against a, a test cluster, right? This is a typical use case. So most people do that. We added a feature recently, and it's still in kind of alpha stage, which is record replay. So with record replay, again, take advantage of the, the programming model of being event-driven. And we record the events that invoke the function, all of them. You can configure which events get recorded. But once you do that, you can simply replay them. And you can replay them on a newer version of a function. So if you use live reload and record replay together, you can actually do some sort of elaborate test once and then simply use a recording of that and replay it against your function to see if if that continues to work. Why is that important? Why is that functionality around recording and replaying serverless invocations useful? Again, record replay is, is actually a pretty old idea. The idea is, is essentially that in various circumstances, you the only information, you don't have enough information to be able to diagnose a problem. And there are broadly approaches to that are improving your monitoring, improving your logging. Probably the most common one is the developer says, I'm going to try to reproduce this problem in an environment that's under my control. So, okay, the user says this thing was slow. The first thing the developer will probably do is try to do the same thing the user did and say, is it slow for me? And if it isn't slow for them, they're in trouble because now they do not have a way of digging further into the problem. Whereas with record replay, they can simply rerun that event. Now, there are nuances and subtleties here. If that event does a database write, for example, or if that event does some transaction that you don't want replayed, it's actually a little bit trickier to replay it. But okay, suppose uh, suppose we put that those hard problems aside for a minute, then those events can simply be replayed for either a different environment or on a different version of the same function in the same environment. And now the developer is looking at the same problem in an environment that's under their control. And they're much better placed to, to be able to, to diagnose and fix it. And when they fix it, they can test the same event and, and say with confidence that they actually fixed it. The overall theme, what you're getting at with record replay and live reloading, you're suggesting that there are other features that a serverless framework needs to provide in order to allow people to more easily deploy serverless functions in production or or to get them to a place where they feel comfortable 
deploying them to production. They need this set of support tools. There's some other stuff you've built recently around the release process, so like a, a, a releasing and having continuous delivery for or having canarying for rollbacks or to just test the, the rollout process. That's obviously important because we've already got that with you know our, our, our other deployment models, so we're going to want that out of serverless. You've done some stuff around monitoring. What are the other barriers to people feeling more comfortable to deploying serverless functions, particularly on a serverless function system that they are operating themselves on a Kubernetes cluster, you know, to feel as comfortable in that environment as they might feel, for example, using a cloud provider's function as a service? Okay, so there's two, uh, three questions here. So the first one, the bringing more confidence to production. The canary deployments, if you've noticed, we're actually going beyond what most people have with their non-serverless setups with canaries and fission. And the reason is that because we are a slightly higher level framework than, say, a container deployment system, we actually know how well your service is doing. So we know whether your function is succeeding or failing, right? Because we are essentially a runtime wrapper for your function, right? So when a user deploys a new version of a function and uses Fission's scannering support, it can actually automatically choose whether to roll forward or back. So users actually configure, this is my rate of increase of deployment. This is the threshold at which I'm going to say, no, this function is failing too much, roll it back. And if it's below that threshold, keep rolling forward. So this is something you would find it harder to do without functions. So functions make automated cannering possible as opposed to simply cannering. This is an element of manual labor to, to cannery deployments where typically the ops engineer is sort of looking at the dashboard continuously for several hours and then chooses to roll forward, which we've tried to eliminate with that, with that automation. Okay, so to answer your other question, which was around open source FAS versus public cloud FAS and the level of confidence, is that? More around the idea of Let's say I am somebody who is operating some on-prem infrastructure. I have decided I want a Kubernetes cluster on across my on-prem infrastructure, and I also want serverless stuff because I want to be able to to get all of the the benefits you get from a, from a serverless environment in the cloud. But I want to do it, but while I'm maintaining my own Kubernetes infrastructure in that environment, I need to get comfortable with the ways that these serverless functions get developed and deployed and monitored because I'm operating this enterprise and I want to feel comfortable. So I'm just wondering from your point of view as you're planning the roadmap for Fission and you've built these things like these are building, you know, canarying, building monitoring, building live reloading. These seem like very deliberate decisions. So I'm just wondering what else is on the feature roadmap to let people feel more comfortable because this is kind of a, a still a, a new paradigm that I think people are not sure how to use. They're probably a little bit uncomfortable with. So what's on your roadmap? Great, great. So there's kind of, we divide our roadmap into two or three kind of uh, tracks. And one of those is is sort of the area you just described, making more complete development workflows around, you know, fitting into how enterprises work. Something we're seeing as we go into production with, with bigger enterprises is that there's always multiple clusters. So what can we do to make their life easier when Fission and the a set of functions is being 
run on lots of clusters. For example, are there some build things we can do where you only compile on one cluster? Because after all, it's the exact same compiled thing on every cluster. There's some monitoring things that you might want to aggregate. So there's some multi-cluster stuff that we're still kind of looking at. Then there is the general improvements around CI and CD. Canarying is one aspect, and today you can canary one function at a time. And your typical application is more than that. So the bigger questions are, as you know, as we go to this more GitOps-like story where you have more automated deployments based on what the what is in a version control repo, how do you deploy that automatically? Can we canary a whole set of things, stuff like that? So sort of dealing with slightly more complex workflows and organizational requirements, that's one thing. The other thing is, from a roadmap point of view, purely the actual performance of the system. Things like the actual programming abstraction, and then there are optimizations that are even completely transparent uh, to users, like making our router faster, by mainly by eliminating it in, in certain cases. I won't go too deep into that right now. And the third area of the roadmap is dealing with programming larger systems using functions. And we, have, we didn't touch on that much in this podcast, maybe maybe another one, but we have efficient workflows uh, system, which lets you... It's the composability. Yes, exactly. So how do you compose lots of functions together? What do you do when you have functions and other services? How do you upgrade them coherently? How do you monitor them, trace them, things like that, while still maintaining the simplicity and other benefits of serverless? That actually is something I wanted to ask you about. Maybe we can, we can touch on that just real quick. So you have this composability idea in Fission where people are composing workflows together from sets of serverless functions. And this sounds to me slightly like how the AWS people, when they're talking about Lambda, they really emphasize this event-driven workflow. So the idea that you have a trigger from an S3 bucket and it triggers something else and then something else happens and the AWS Lambda is the glue that fits it all together. Is the idea of a fission workflow where you have these functions that are strung together to do interesting things, is it similar to this event-driven model that you see the AWS people talk about? Yes, to some extent. So let me do a quick sort of overview of how you might compose your functions. The most obvious way you write another function and it calls various other functions, right? This is not great because now you're kind of dealing with retries and long-running functions, stuff like that. I'm kind of hand-waving away some of the problems because it's, I'm trying to make this short. But the other problem, the other a really different way to compose functions together is the thing you just described, use events. So instead of focusing on the control flow, you focus on data flow. So you design message queues. In AWS, there are you know various queues they offer, and in the open source world, there's, there's you know things like NATs, Kafka, all that stuff. And you can trigger your functions from these queues, send their output to other queues, trigger other functions from them, right? So you can make a somewhat complex machine from these things. But workflows is a third way, and it tries to borrow from both these techniques. So the problem with event-driven stuff is that it is hard to see the big picture in an event-driven model. It's hard for the developer, it's hard for the operations person. If a developer is trying to change the interface of a function or a data format for an event that's going across the wire, they need to figure out what other functions are affected by this. And it's not always obvious without uh, diving deep into the configuration 
what that picture is. And it's kind of easy to make mistakes there. And if you do want to change the interface, and even after you've found out that it affects certain functions, doing the upgrade and the deployment of that is really tricky because you know you don't really control which function is going to interact with which one because all you're dealing with is message queues. So workflows is the idea that what if we had infrastructure that has the whole picture somehow explained to it? And we do that by, by writing a workflow that joins together these functions. And it kind of declaratively describes data and control flow. So underneath the workflow system is an event-driven system. It is ultimately using message queues to pass data from one function to another. But the configuration of those message queues is, is abstracted away from the programmer. So we can do things like consistent upgrades. Makes sense. So I know we're basically up against time. I just want to ask you about the broader Kubernetes ecosystem because you're as deep into this as as anybody. So you're going to some of these conferences and you're talking to people. It's been, uh, I guess, a year, a year and a half since we spoke. How have things changed in the broader ecosystem since we last spoke? What kinds of changes are you seeing today? I think in particular in Kubernetes, just from going to conferences and talking to people, we've we've moved from the state of, hey, this is cool technology to like very specific production kind of problems. And that's good. We're, we've gone to the more mature stage of actually using it and dealing with problems that come up and having kind of detailed analyses of different options. And the conferences themselves, I remember the first KubeCon I went to, Everyone I spoke to was some sort of tool vendor or the other. There were not a whole lot of Kubernetes users. It was just kind of lots of Kubernetes developers and developers like myself working on frameworks on Kubernetes. But now it's mainly people using Kubernetes in various uh, different ways. So that's good. We've gone to a more, more sort of practitioner's kind of view in, in these various Kubernetes conferences. Okay. Well, Soam, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking, and I'm sure we'll speak again in the future about whatever updates you have in Fission and other topics in the Kubernetes world. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Continuous delivery frees up your developers to ship code independently. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery tool. And we've partnered with GoCD on many episodes in the past. We've done some great shows about continuous delivery strategies. Today, we're delivering a quick tip about modern continuous delivery. Today's tip is to have a standard process for distributing configuration. Your configuration might vary depending on the environment. You need to be able to manage the different configurations in your different continuous delivery environments. And regardless of the tech stack of your services and your environments, whether we're talking about test or staging or production, you want to have your configuration managed consistently. To find out more about continuous delivery and tactics and strategies around continuous delivery, check out gocd.org sedaily. GoCD has been a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily for more than two years. We love working with them, and we're proud to have their support. If you're getting started with continuous delivery yourself, check out gocd.org slash se daily. Wow.